The largest amphibious assault ever in the history of the world took place on June 6, 1944. Um, you know that date. Everybody knows that date. It was D-Day. The Germans had control of the continent of Europe, and if the Allies were going to defeat them, they had to invade. And part of the invasion planning, which took uh, place over the course of an entire year, part of the invasion planning involved a campaign. I sound really loud to myself, Todd, so I'm not sure if one of these are on or something. That'd be, you don't know either. Well, okay, we'll keep going. He will figure it out. Uh, part of the campaign, ah, that's better, thank you, was to uh, uh, fool the Germans into thinking that the invasion was going to take place somewhere else other than Normandy. Their, their main goal was to convince the Germans that the, the uh, uh, Allies were going to land on the beach at Calais. It was closer to England, it made more sense. Uh, and and they, they wanted to fool the Germans into thinking that's where they were going. Actually, they wanted to fool the Germans into thinking they were landing anywhere else but Normandy. Uh, the, the plan was called Operation Bodyguard. Here's some of the things that the Allies did. The first thing they did was that they had 12 German spies in Great Britain that they had found. They had uncovered these spies, and they used them as double agents to send false information back to Germany. Uh, one of the things that these 12 German agents sent back this information was uh, details about a fictitious branch of the British Army called the British Fourth Army that was supposedly being amassed in Scotland. And what this branch was going to do was going to go over and join the Soviets in an invasion through Norway into Germany. And one of the things they did, they chattered all the time on the radio about how they needed ski bindings and about how uh, their military equipment would work in sub-zero temperatures. Another part of Operation Bodyguard involved uh, building a phantom force. They named it the 1st U.S. Army Group. It was supposedly led by the Army's greatest uh, strategic commander, General Patton. And it was headquartered right in that southeastern corner of England, right across uh, the uh, channel from uh, Calais. Uh, they covered the air with radio transmissions as if there were a lot of soldiers stationed there. They built metal frames in the shape of planes and covered them with canvas so that if, uh, a fl if you were flying over, it would look like there were lots of planes down there. They, they uh, had inflatable Sherman tanks that they would move around at night. And they even had a roller that they'd push along the ground that created Sherman tank tracks in the dirt so that, again, aerial reconnaissance would look look and see this massive army. I, I like this. They, they put false wedding announcements in the local newspapers so that it would look like there were a lot of soldiers stationed there that were getting married left and right. A lot of people there, a lot of marriages just to fool the Germans. Uh, they increased bombing raids to Calais so it looked like they were preparing to go there. They dropped dummy paratroopers back behind enemy lines over in Calais and they had little speakers in them that would uh, telegraph sounds of gunfire and grenades going off so it sounded like troops were there. They, they wanted to confuse them even further, so they found an Australian actor. He was kind of a mediocre fellow, but he looked like General Montgomery, a lot like General Montgomery, and they dressed him up and they sent him very visibly into the Mediterranean as if General Montgomery were looking for the perfect place to invade from the southern end instead of from Normandy. It was a massive ruse. 
uh, hundreds of, of men were involved in this. And all the, the, the point of it was to distract and confuse and frighten the enemy. I mention that to you today because our focus is on spiritual warfare. And I think that the adversary, our adversary, the devil, practices a similar form of deceit, all with the same goal, to frighten, distract, and confuse us. Uh, this morning, we're going to finish a three-week uh, topical series. We have been talking about Satan for the last few weeks. And one of the challenges that we have discussed each week is that this is an area of doctrine where people are most inclined to be skeptical. Uh, they believe Satan is not a real person. They believe that he is a myth or a symbol or in the Bible, a personification of evil, not a real person. In his book, uh, The Reason for God, Tim Keller argues, he said that if you are willing to grant the existence of God, then you really have no logical reason to doubt the existence of Satan. One's the creator and one is a creature, but both of them inhabit the unseen spiritual world. I am happy this morning to affirm the existence of the devil because Jesus himself affirmed the existence of the devil. He spoke about Satan 25 times in the Gospels. Uh, in 2013, a couple of years before he died, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia was interviewed in the New York Times, and he was talking about his views on a wide variety of things, and he mentioned just in an offhand way that he believes in the existence of the devil. And the newspaper reporter was a little bit surprised. Here's uh, part of what Scalia said. The, inter the exchange was fascinating. Here's just a little bit of it. You're looking, Scalia said to him, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. I don't think you'd want to get in a theological argument with Antonin Scalia. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So far, we've talked about Satan's origin. He's a creature from God, uh, created by God who lives in rebellion against him and hatred toward humanity. We've talked about Satan's work. He is chiefly the ruler of this world system that is hostile to God. We who follow Jesus are, in a sense, foreigners here. We're actually um, native foreigners. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? We're native, natives to this world, but being, having been adopted by God, we are, our citizenship is in heaven, and now we are foreigners. So we're native foreigners. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote in the, the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? He said, Are there, there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this cruel world a friend to grace? To help me unto God? No, this cruel world is not a friend to grace to help you unto God. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Satan's downfall. And it became clear to me in my uh, study that uh, this is a subject we could spend several weeks considering. Uh, for example, we could talk about Satan's ultimate end in the book of Revelation, uh, but that's all I'm going to say about that right now. We're not going to talk about that anymore. 
My concern this morning is I want to talk about how we respond to Satan in the here and now. And my conviction as we we pick up this topic is that our enemy is committed to a great and terrible fraud. One that is deceiving and uh, scaring us. It happens through outlandishly horrifying television shows and movies. And it also happens this deception through well-meaning Christian teachers and preachers. Well, there's a lot that, that we could be said this morning. I want to structure, though, what we're going to talk about around uh, six headings. And I want to warn you, if the last two weeks have felt more luxury than preachy, this is even going to be more so that way. Um, next week, we'll start our biblical exposition in Second Thessalonians. But this morning, we're going to talk about Satan's downfall. Six headings. Here's the first one. Number one, the Bible gives you all the information you need for spiritual warfare. The Bible gives you all the information you need for spiritual warfare. Let me show you that from the Bible, and then I want to tell you why that matters. First of all, I want to show you a very familiar passage, which is going to appear magically behind me. I'm going to move so you can see it all. Danny, you might need to click it up for me here. There it is. 2 Timothy 3.16. You know this verse. Here we go. All scripture is God-breathed. That tells us about its source. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Three questions. Where does the Bible come from? God. What does the Bible do? It teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains. Why does the Bible do that? So that the you can be thoroughly equipped. That means uh, fit, uh, sufficient, complete. The Bible is the only authoritative sufficient source for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Then here, a next verse, let's see. Uh, 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything, everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We've been given everything we need for a godly life. Now, why should we start here with the sufficiency of Scripture? Because the church is inundated with unbiblical or non-biblical ideas about Satan and spiritual warfare. Uh, here's a familiar path. This story happens. Uh, think about this. Maybe you've seen this or heard this. Uh, a young man or woman grows up in the United States. They go overseas, uh, perhaps as a missionary, and they encounter things that they have never seen before. And because they encounter things that they have never seen over there, um, they come back and they teach us and they spread their expertise about what they have learned in their overseas encounter with demons. And sometimes these, these teachings from these uh, so-called deliverance experts, um, they, they, they want to tell us, you haven't seen them here in the States, but I've seen them overseas, and I'm going to come and tell you about all the things that I have learned. And the problem is that most of the things that they say are not biblical. Now, if you're inclined to heed them and have been helped by some of them, those teachers, you sh- this is what you should be thinking to yourself right now. You should say to yourself, Divini... You don't know. You just haven't been there. You haven't personally seen real evil. You haven't seen it, and if you haven't seen it, then you can't teach us about it. You don't know the secrets that are involved in spiritual warfare because you clearly don't have enough experience and exposure. 
The problem, again, is that what is so much of what is taught and advocated by these experts is not in the Bible. And sometimes not only is it extra-biblical, it is unbiblical. And in fact, Paul warns us about relying on uh, teachings that, is, that are based on experience. He does this, does this in Colossians chapter 2. Let me show you a verse from Colossians 2, verse 18. Paul here is talking about uh, false teachers. These are people who are not genuine followers of Jesus Christ, but they are teaching these false things. But notice here, so the, the context is a little different, but notice what he says about their experience and how reliable or not it is. Look what it says. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Be careful about those who come claiming authority based on their experience. Second Peter also says something that is helpful to us here. Again, the context is about false teachers. I don't think that those uh, missionaries who come uh, or, or friends who have overseas experience are coming um, with ill motives. They're not coming to hurt people. They're not coming uh, 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 as our enemies. This passage, though, is about uh, enemies of, of the true gospel. But look at the context still. Second Peter 2, this is especially true, these false teachers, of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Here we go. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. Be careful of those who come and claim that they have talked to, uh, had long conversations with, or uh, mocked celestial beings. Now, we need to explain uh, this a little bit more. Uh, one of the things I, I said is, uh, notice I said that the Bible is sufficient for us. That is, it gives us everything that we need to know, not necessarily everything that I want to know. There's a difference. Uh, well, let's go back to D-Day for just a minute, shall we? Uh, uh, all the planning that was involved in that and all the work that was the, the overall picture, the big picture, was known by a very small number of people, General Eisenhower and his uh, associates. There. It's a very tight group that knew all of the details. But there were thousands of men and women involved all over Great Britain and the United States uh, who knew what was, uh, who had a part to play, but they didn't have the whole picture. Imagine a private coming up to General Eisenhower and saying, you know, I'm not really uh, comfortable fulfilling the, the orders that you have given unless I really know the whole picture. So, General, I'd like you to tell me everything there is to know. What would happen to him? He'd be in the brig somewhere, right? Okay. God is the commanding officer. He has not necessarily given us everything we want to know, but he has told us everything we need to know. Now, let's expand on this, and we're going to do it with heading number two. Heading number two is very closely related to number one. You should reject unbiblical teaching about spiritual warfare. You should reject unbiblical teaching about spiritual warfare. Uh, this should not surprise you. It's not surprising that I'm going to say this. This is the moment that we're going to get specific about some extra biblical ideas. Maybe you've heard of some of these. The first one we're going to talk about is territorial spirits. Have you heard of territorial spirits? Territorial spirits are demons, supposedly, who exercise a controlling influence over a, a specific area. 
usually a country or a city or a region. In popular culture, territorial spirits live in houses, and unsuspecting people buy these houses and move in, and demons ruin their lives. Now, how do these territorial spirits get there? Uh, Some people say they're assigned there by Satan. Some people say that they're invited by cultic activity or practice and things like that. Uh, Rita Cabezas is a Latin American teacher. She wrote a book uh, a few years ago. And this is what she claims from her extensive research. This is what she teaches authoritatively. She says, under Satan, the world is ruled by six principalities that are named. Now, her research is in Spanish, so bear that in mind as I say them, as I pronounce them terribly. So here's the Satan and then six principalities. Damien, Asmodeo, Mengelesh, Arios, Beelzebub, and Nosferastus are the six principalities ruling under Satan. And under each principality, there are six governors over each nation. For example, she was from Costa Rica. Over Costa Rica, uh, Rica, Costa Rica, the, the nations are uh, the, the principalities are Shaibo, Quaibo, Amineo, Mephistopheles, Nostradamus, and Azazel. Here she says are the six governors ruling over the United States: Ralphus, Anorito. Manchester, Apollyon, Devil Took, and one unnamed governor. She hasn't found out his name yet. I'm pretty sure, though, he's in Congress. So that's the six governors over the United States. None of this is in the Bible. None of it is in the Bible. Where'd she get these names and ideas? She got them from her uh, deliverance ministry, from talking to demons and from direct revelation from God. But it is not in the scriptures at all. See, Peter Wagner says we need to think about territorial spirits because evangelism in some countries is hard because of the demons that are in control of those nations. For example, he says that one of the reasons that the population of Japan, the percentage of Christians in Japan is so low is because there are controlling demons in Japan who are hindering people from believing the gospel. And that what we really need to do before we send any more missionaries there is figure out who those controlling territorial spirits are and cast them out of Japan so that the gospel will flourish there. Some teachers advocate that you should prayer walk around your neighborhood and claim back the territory of your neighborhood or your school from evil forces. The problem with that is that this is never the strategy that the Apostle Paul used in evangelizing the world. He entered cities that were rife with false gods and rife with idols, with magicians and the occult. They were all over the place wherever he went. And what he did in those cities was he stood up and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't cast out demons. He didn't identify territorial spirits. He went very simply to, and boldly to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. He, there's no indication in the Bible at all that he ever considered territorial spirits. Now here's another unbiblical idea. Uh, generational curses. Have you ever heard of this? Generational curses. If you haven't heard of it, good for you. It's good. This is the idea that somehow evil or sin can be passed on down to the next generation. And you may need to take in your life special steps to renounce the evil that you have inherited from your parents. This is the spiritual way to blame your problems on your parents, isn't it? Right? 
The reason your life is bad is because your parents were dysfunctional. Now you can add a layer. They were demonic too. And that's, here it is. This is the young adult's dream. Hmm. Um, one teacher, actually this is, that, this is not, huh. one teacher has advocated that you need to be very careful if you are, plan ever to adopt a child because you don't know what that child's parents were involved in and you may be adopting and welcoming into your home a satanic curse. Now, here's a verse that is often cited for this. Exodus 25 comes from the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, false gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a verse that's often cited, and here it is. Third or fourth generation. God punishes sin to the third and fourth generation. And so we have this idea of generational curses. But I say unto you, you should read the rest of the verse. The whole verse, as a matter of fact. So um, your translation might not say, uh, for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations. Your translation might be missing this word. It, it fits there, belongs there. It, it, um, um, it, it's like saying, the reason it's not there is because if you were to go to the uh, grocery store and you wanted to order, you wouldn't get them at the grocery store, the party store, and you want to order balloons, and you go up to the counter and you say to the man behind the counter, I want to order five blue balloons and three red well, he knows what you mean, right? Balloons. You, you didn't say it, but that's what you meant. And the word generation belongs in this text right there after the thousand generation. Now, if we're going to say, follow me here, you have to think, God disciplines to the third and fourth generation, generational curses, but there's a second part of this verse about God's love that's shown to the thousandth generation. So if I'm going to take the first part of this verse literally, what about the second part? Okay, here we go. If my great-grandfather was a Satanist, he was not, he's a fine man. My great-grandfather was a Satanist, a horrible, occultic person. But my grandfather was a, a devout follower of Christ, loved Jesus, served him his whole life, which part of this verse should I literally apply to my life? Am I cursed because I'm in the third generation of my great-grandfather? Or am I blessed because I'm in the thousandth generation of my grandfather? Which part of this verse should I literally apply to myself? Let's not talk on this verse of the, about uh, generational curses. Let's talk about generational blessings. <laughs> See, the point... That's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is not about generational curses and whether your life might be hurt because of something your grandparents or great-grandparents did. The whole point of the verse is about the greatness of God and about his supremacy. God is just. You know how just he is? He is so just that you may feel the discipline that comes from him in your family for a 100 years. It may rock your family for a 100 years. But God is so loving 
He is so kind and generous that you can feel the impact of his blessings for a thousand years. This verse is not about counting back to the worst person in your family tree. This verse is about God's immense love, his immense blessings. I don't think this is about generational curses. Now, even let's think about this even more on the basis of this conversation that Jesus had in John 9. So uh, he was traveling with his disciples. He saw a man. Well, let's read the text. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What sin was he committing in the womb? I don't know. But Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, that's not the right question to ask. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. If you're looking in your family tree for the problems that you have because of some supposed generational curse, you're looking in the wrong place. All right, let's move on here. One more unbiblical idea that I want to talk about here. Uh, Briefly, beware of teaching about demons associated with particular sins. Whoops, I didn't want to show you that yet, but that's okay. Beware of talking about uh, teaching about demons associated with particular sins. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, takes this approach in his otherwise fine uh, theology book. Uh, Maybe he says you struggle with greed or gossip or lust because in particular you are being oppressed by a demon of lust or anger or greed. And maybe you need to pray against that demon of anger or lust or greed who is bringing this special temptation or sin into your life. But here's the problem. The Bible never talks about demons that are associated with particular sins. In fact, it does something else, which brings me to heading number three. Your great enemy is your sin nature. Your great enemy is your sin nature, also known as the flesh. The flesh. Your translation might use that term a lot. The flesh. Sometimes when teachers and preachers talk about challenges uh, believers face, they talk about our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Have you heard those three put together, the world, the flesh, and the devil? The flesh is our internal disposition to sin, and it exists in all of us. It's part of you. It's part of you as a creature born alienated from God. It's interesting. We have within us this disposition to sin, and sometimes the Bible talks about it as if it's, You, and sometimes it talks about it as if it's alien to you. Uh, We talk about this. We we talk this way. Um, Winston Churchill, apparently it's World War II Day, I'm not sure. Winston Churchill used to talk about his depression, and he would describe it as my black dog. As if it was something else outside of him that was oppressing him. But but actually, it's part of him, and yet it's alien to him, too, a little bit. And the Bible talks about our flesh that way. When the Bible talks about sin, though, our sin, my sin, it doesn't not do it primarily in terms of demons, but in terms of the flesh. There are 21 letters in the New Testament, 21 epistles, uh, and t- uh, evil spirits are mentioned 10 times mostly just to give factual information. The flesh is mentioned as the primary enemy of the Christian 50 times. The flesh is my primary, my biggest problem is me. 
I am my greatest spiritual problem, and it is always me. In the course of your life, you are born alienated from God, powerless before the flesh. It had controlling influence over you. When you became a follower of Jesus Christ, that power was broken. You do not have to follow it. Someday when we see Jesus face to face, the sin nature is going to be eradicated. But it's still there, this disposition. Now, look here with me at Galatians 6, uh, 5.16. Very familiar verses. But here's a picture of this battle that we're in. Look what it says. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord... Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible does not say that there is a demon of lust or a demon of anger or a demon of fear, but attributes all of these things to the flesh. And why is that important? It should keep us from blame shifting. I... I really don't want to believe that I'm as bad as the Bible says I am. It doesn't match the image that I want to have of myself. I don't really want to believe that within me is the potential for all of these things. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, envy, impurity. I I don't want to believe that. It's easier for me to believe that about you than it is about me. If, if you could come and tell me that my real problem is that I have a demon of envy or anger and that you can remove that demon from my life, then please do it. And then I don't have to worry about it. And it's not part of me. That's how the, the blame shifting that is involved in this. I can blame generational curses. It's my parents' fault my own selfish ambition and rage and envy and anger. It's a demon's fault. Your greatest enemy is the enemy within. It is your flesh. Now, heading number four. We'll move on. Jesus Christ is the great victor over Satan. Jesus Christ is the great victor over Satan. Now, we could talk about this in a number of contexts. We could talk about the end where he will throw Satan into the lake of fire. We could talk about that. We could talk about the victory that he had. We'll celebrate uh, in his de- uh, death and resurrection. We could talk about that. I want to talk, though, for just a few minutes about Jesus' encounter with demonic powers when he was here on earth in the Gospels. There's stories. There's a lot of stories about how Jesus encountered demons in the Gospels, and he defeated them every single time. It's strange, isn't it? You read these stories, and they sound... There's so much out of our experience what is what is going on here well first is just the statistics uh there are three general statements in the gospels about how jesus cast out demons it would say something like um they the people brought to him those who were ill and he healed them and cast out demons something like that three reports like that there are eight specific instances of Jesus having a, 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 a specific detailed encounter with demons. And then there's a couple of 
stories that involve his disciples and demons. Now, on the basis of some of those scenes, there are teachers and preachers who, who build their whole understanding of how they can encounter demons and exercise demons uh, based on these stories of Jesus' encounter with them. They're all strange scenes when you read the Gospels. All eight of those scenes are strange. Those who are possessed by demons are in clear torment. They're, they're, demons are so destructive. Satan hates human beings as image bearers of God. He's committed to his work to steal and kill and to destroy. Demon-possessed people throw themselves into fires. They are mute. They cut themselves with rocks. They howl. They're in torment in the Gospels. I think that demon possession happens. Uh, Demon possession happens. I've never seen it for myself. Uh, Frankly, in the West, I don't think it's in Satan's interest to reveal himself this way. He's wily. He's subtle. His subtlety is a mockery of our sophistication that denies his existence. Demon possession takes place when a demon takes up residence in a person's body and from that position exercises sovereign control over them. His goal is to torment. Sometimes that torment involves illness. And when Jesus encounters these demons, he always, he always, he always emerges victorious. And I think that his triumph in the gospel is there not because it's providing a model for us to follow, but because it indicates he is supreme as the God-ordained Messiah. That's important. In other words here, these eight stories are in the gospels not to show us how to cast out demons, but to demonstrate that Jesus can. Now, I want to show you that from the text here. I want to make that argument from the text I want to show you this verse in Luke 7. John the Baptist is still serving, still baptizing, and still preaching. And he's beginning to have ask some questions about Jesus. Uh, Jesus, is, his timetable is different than John's. You ever had that experience where God isn't quite working on your same timetable? <laughs> yes, everybody has. Now, looking at the text, John, so John, in his questions, sends some of his followers to Jesus to ask him, When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You're not really doing things the way way I thought you would in the timetable that I thought. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Casting out demons is one of the things in this list that Jesus does, not the list he refers to, but the list that he does, that demonstrates that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is the God-ordained Messiah who has come to be victorious over sin, sickness, death, disease, and demons. Uh, Whenever there was uh, an encounter, Jesus emerged victorious. That's the point of what Jesus does in the gospel. And And then 
when Jesus' closest followers cast out demons. That's a sign, too, of the authenticity of Jesus' message. It's not a model to tell us how. It's a story to tell us that Jesus can and does. He has this power. Now, even if we take Jesus' work as a model of how uh, we're to cast out demons, many of the so-called contemporary exorcists, uh, they vary greatly from what we see in the Gospels. Actually, the, the, the New Testament never uses uh, the word exorcism. Uh, it does, but it never uses it about Jesus. Uh, uh, the word exorcism is uh, exorcist is a Greek word, just the transliteration of a Greek word. And the Bible never uses that word to describe Jesus. It always uses the word ekbalo, which means to cast out. I think that's so that Jesus isn't associated with Jewish exorcists. The other thing that we notice in the Bible is that nobody ever came to Jesus because they were demon-possessed and asked him to, exor- to cast out the demons. Although there are teachers who would tell you, if you're demon-possessed, come, I'll cast them out. No one actually ever volunteered for that in the Gospels. Jesus never had dialogue with the demons. Uh, one sentence or two with the man, uh, the Gadarene, demoniac but he, he didn't dialogue with him he didn't he didn't talk with him he didn't laugh with him he didn't joke with him he didn't mock them he never allowed them to testify on his behalf whenever there was a counter jesus spoke and he emerged victorious can a christian be demon possessed i don't believe so a christian is indwelt by the holy spirit and there is no other vacancies What do you do if you think you are demon-possessed? Turn to Jesus as your Savior. His death and resurrection is to be your confident hope. His power is sufficient to overcome any demonic presence. Uh, uh, There's no special steps needed other than turning to Jesus as your Savior. What do you do if you meet someone who's demon-possessed? You invite them to believe the gospel. There's nothing special required. Don't get any holy water. Um, Share the gospel with them. Preach the gospel. It's the good news. It is powerful unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now here's heading number five. Maybe this will validate number four a little bit. God is sovereign over Satan and demons. God is sovereign over Satan and demons. We learn this from the book of Job. In every way, Satan's power is limited by God, and and we don't need to live in fear. We don't need to live in fear that we're going to accidentally pick up a demon somehow or that we're unwittingly going to allow them into our lives because because God is sovereign over them. William Gurnall was a Puritan writer. He wrote a massive book about Ephesians 6. And listen to what he said. When God says stay... Satan must stand like a dog by the table while the saints feast on God's comfort. That's a good image. I like that. He, Satan, does not dare to snatch even a tidbit for the master's eye is always upon him. There's a sense in which I don't want to downplay at all Satan but because Peter says, that Satan is a roaring lion and we should be sober and alert. But on the other hand, I want to say this is totally true. Satan is nothing but a dog at Jesus' table. And when God says sit, he sits and, and enables his children to feast on the, the, the table of God's comfort. 
no need to be afraid. No need to think that somehow unwittingly you have allowed Satan into your life. Finally here, heading number six. Last thing we're going to talk about. You are commanded to resist the devil. You're commanded to resist the devil. This is the only command in the New Testament that is given to believers when it comes to Satan. Um, We're not commanded to rebuke the devil. We're not commanded to bind the devil. We're not commanded to cast out the devil. We're commanded to resist the devil. And the command comes in three different places. Let me show them to you. We read, uh, Joe read one of them uh, this morning from Ephesians 6. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. That's it, resist. Stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Resist. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then finally, oh, that's First Peter. What happened to James? Oh, whoa, they all disappeared. Okay, there we go. Ephesians 6. Nope. Can you show me, James? I'll set it down. There we go. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then last, Danny, go ahead. Last verse we're going to look at. Good. First Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist. The word resist, it's translated stand. It's, it's the Greek word prahistime. To stand before is what it means. Uh, pro, before. Histime, to stand. It's, it's a defensive word. It's not an offensive word. We are told to stand defensively before Satan. Why not offensively? Because God is the one who defends us, who stands before us. I do actually have one more verse. No, I don't. Okay, listen to this in Exodus 14, 13. It's the same passage. This is the passage where Moses, the Israelites, Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt. They're standing next to the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army is coming, and Moses, the people are afraid. And, and Moses says to them, listen, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm. Stand firm firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. When it comes in the New Testament to spiritual warfare, the command is not, don't just do something, stand there. The command is, uh, don't, let's see, how do I want to say this? This is the not, not, don't just stand there, do something. Instead, the Bible says, don't just do something, stand there. That's what the Bible says. Stand. How do we stand? Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 tells us we stand by putting on Christ's character, his righteousness, his peace, his faith. Arm yourself by putting on the virtues that are embodied by him. Speak to him in prayer. Listen to him in his word. Become more like him. Charles Kraft says that, that demons are like rats and they gather, they're attracted to garbage. So clean out the garbage in your life by becoming like Jesus. Stand. Peter and James, in context, they call us both to humble ourselves before God, to exercise humility and submit to God and you'll be able to stand. And when you encounter things that you don't understand, 
you, you respond by saying, Lord Jesus, you are victorious over everything, and my hope and trust is in you and in your ability to fight. So we spend three weeks now talking about Satan, which is proportionally probably about right to what it's like in the Bible. Um, we're after Christ. We're after Christ. We're after putting him on and standing in the wake of his great victory. We're after Christ. It's not a walk in the park by any measure. But it's not quite D-Day either. The reason it's not is because we're in him and with him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks that you are our great Father and we can call you uh, Father because we have been adopted into your family, you who are sovereign over our enemy. He comes to us, Father, as a roaring lion, but he sits beneath your feet as nothing but a dog. Help us to maintain our balance between these things. Lord, that we are sober and alert, but not afraid. That we are aware of his schemes, but we're not outwitted by them because we trust your great wisdom. Lord, we thank you that that Satan is a defeated foe, though he is still vicious. We thank you even as we turn to celebrate our Lord's victory over sin and death, we, we do so knowing that he also disarmed the powers and authorities that were arrayed against us. Oh, it is good to follow Jesus Christ, he who is the great victor. He arose victorious or the, from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Good news. We thank you that we can celebrate it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.